You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. I think that most of us know of stories of families that have split up, and we are aware that even in the most amicable of situations, those setups can certainly be difficult on our children. This week, we're going to look at a case where, in hindsight, it seems that the system that we put into place to protect our children may have had a hand in forcing an issue that led to the death of a very young boy who had his entire life ahead of him. Perhaps even worse yet were the lengths that were taken by the guilty party in this case to avoid being caught, which in turn caused even more stress and concern for the family of the young boy who was murdered. This story, like far too many of them, comes with twists and turns and an end result that could not have possibly been more horrifying. Hello. My name is Lance, and welcome to episode 107 of Gone But Never Forgotten, covering up crime, the murder of Dylan Redwine. Dylan Redwine was born to his mother, Elaine Hall, and his father, Mark Redwine, and he had one brother as well from Elaine and Mark, named Corey. Dylan's life had certainly gone through a few transitions, having moved a few times, including not too long before this episode takes place, when he had moved from southwestern Colorado to Colorado Springs with his mom, Elaine, and his brother, Corey. That move happened when Dylan was in junior high, so he learned how to be adaptable to change. It didn't take Dylan long to make friends anywhere that he went, and he was described by friends as a fiery kid that was known to have a short temper from time to time, but who was very popular and fun to be around. Dylan sounded like he was unapologetically himself, and when he decided to follow through on a plan, I can only assume that he always intended to see that plan through to conclusion. Dylan had a plan for the next time that he went to visit his father, Mark Redwine, because Dylan was seemingly not interested in having any kind of relationship with his father anymore. Dylan was at the center of a custody battle between Elaine and Mark, and that had made life a living hell on more than one occasion. The problem was that the fight was taking up time, money, 
and effort, and both Dylan and Corey had made it clear that they wanted to live with Elaine. The relationship between Mark and his sons had seemingly started to degrade over the previous couple of years, but it had come to a head on a recent trip when both Corey and Dylan were with their father and they had found photographs on his laptop. The photographs were of Mark wearing women's lingerie, and he appeared to be eating feces out of a diaper. Suffice to say, the boys were appalled by what they had seen, and they had probably that had probably been the point where they lost whatever respect that they had left for their father. Corey decided that he was not going to see Mark anymore, and he had forced the issue by having a fight with Mark over text using said photographs. He had sent Mark one of the photos and said, quote, Hey, sweetheart, you are what you eat, unquote. Dylan, however, was still of the age where the court could mandate that he go to visit his father, and that is exactly what happened. They mandated that Dylan needed to go to see his father for Thanksgiving weekend. Dylan was not happy about it, and everyone knew it. He told his mom, he told his friends, and I am sure that he told Mark also. However, because of the custody battle, Elaine was not able to step in and stop Dylan from going. Her attorneys had told her that doing so could see her face jail time, and it would severely hurt her standing in the custody battle as well. Dylan finally made up a plan in his mind that he was going to cause a scene and force a falling out between his father and himself, much like Corey had done when he called Mark out about the photographs. He intended to show the photographs to Mark as proof that Mark was full of it, and as proof that Dylan was much better off with Elaine and Corey than he was with Mark. There was obviously a lot of water under the bridge in this relationship, but it's still hard to hear that a father-son relationship had come to this. It always breaks my heart when you hear about people going through things and situations similar to this one. And so, on November 18th, Elaine would put Dylan on a plane against her own better judgment because she knew that Dylan was very upset about being forced to go. She was not aware, however, that Dylan had plans to confront his father in any way. She did not know that Dylan was essentially planning to end the custody battle on his own by forcing Mark out of his life. Video footage would later be found of Dylan and Mark after Mark picked him up at the airport. The two seemed to be distant and not converse much, if at all, which investigators would later find very suspicious, of course. There was then video footage that showed Mark and Dylan at Walmart, but then they went their own separate ways when they arrived, and again, didn't have very much interaction considering that they had not seen one another in some time. Those images and videos certainly show that the relationship had many issues, in my mind at least. On the flight, Dylan had also made plans with a friend who lived near to Mark, and the two had made plans for Dylan to sleep over at the friend's house that night. When Dylan told Mark that he was going to sleep at the friend's house, Mark was angry and told Dylan that he was not allowed to go for the sleepover. 
Dylan would later text his friend and tell him that Mark did not approve of the sleepover and that he would instead come over first thing in the morning at 6.30 a.m. It's believed that the argument over the sleepover may have been the argument that started whatever interaction happened between Mark and Dylan, but we will get to that in a minute. The next morning on the 19th, Dylan's friend woke up and was surprised that Dylan did not show up on time. The friend knew that Dylan would be desperate to get out of Mark's house and expected him to be early, if anything. When the friend had not heard from Dylan by 6.45 a.m., he sent a text because he found it incredibly weird that Dylan would choose to stay at Mark's. Mark would say that he left the house around 7.30 a.m. and that he had errands to run. He said that when he arrived back at the home at 11.30 a.m., he found a half-eaten bowl of cereal on the table, and he said that Nickelodeon was on the television, but Dylan was nowhere to be found. Mark would tell investigators that he then called around to Dylan's friends to see if anyone had seen him, and he also called Elaine, Dylan's mother, to tell her that Dylan was missing. At 6 p.m., Mark would finally file a missing persons report with the police. Meanwhile, Elaine had started on the six-hour car ride that was the trip from Colorado Springs, and along the way she did find time to send a text message to Mark. She told Mark that Dylan would have never just left the house to run away because there was no need to. He would have certainly called her if he was going to run away. She told Mark immediately that she was very suspicious of him regarding Dylan's disappearance. Meanwhile, police took the missing report very seriously, and it didn't take long before there were officers and members of the community out in force to try to search for Dylan in the forested and mountainous areas that surrounded Mark's home. As all of these members of the community that were strangers, essentially, to Dylan were out with torches and flashlights, quite literally risking their lives looking for Dylan, there was someone that was missing from the search party, and that was Mark. Mark was at home, and by 11 p.m. he was asleep with all of the lights off inside of his home. This would certainly be one of the first things that came out that started to turn the mob on Mark. Nobody could understand how Mark could simply go to bed while his son was missing. Searches for Dylan would prove to be fruitless, sadly, and the FBI would join the search about a week in. Around that time, Elaine was very open with ABC News Radio when she said in an interview that she believed that Mark may have had something to do with Dylan's disappearance. She said that Mark was angry because Elaine had recently received primary custody of the boys and she wasn't sure what Mark was capable of. Ironically, a day later, Mark would make his first public appearance since Dylan had gone missing at a public vigil for Dylan. Mark said that he did not believe that Dylan had run away because there was no reason for Dylan to run away and there was nothing for Dylan to run away from. This comment would be ironic later.
On November 29th of 2012, the La Plata County Sheriff's Office would execute a search warrant on Mark's home in relation to and looking for evidence regarding Dylan's disappearance. Investigators would find traces of Dylan's blood in Mark's living room, and they also would search the premises with cadaver dogs, and they would indicate that there had been a corpse in the living room of Mark's house and also in the bed of Mark's truck. The cadaver dogs would also hit on the washing machine and the clothes that Mark had indicated that he was wearing on the night of November 18th. All of that evidence and information certainly did little to take Mark Redwine off of the list of potential suspects within the case. Seemingly, making him even more of a person of interest was the fact that a couple of months after Dylan had gone missing, Mark's other ex-wife came forward and she said that Mark had told her in the past that the mountains near his home were the perfect place to hide a body if she ever needed to do so. On a separate occasion, she also said that Mark had told her in no uncertain terms that he would kill their children before he would let her have custody. Those words are absolutely haunting if true, and sadly that is the mindset of some people. The battle between Elaine and Mark would wind up becoming more and more public, Sadly, on some levels, I think that that was because there were certain channels and there were certain shows that saw the potential for drama and ratings, and they drew on it. On an episode of Dr. Phil, Mark and Elaine spent much of the show throwing barbs and accusations at one another, and perhaps most of note was the fact that Mark refused to take a lie detector test. As the two of them continued to spew their venom at one another, the case itself was sadly stuck in the mud and getting colder by the day. There was no new evidence of Dylan or remains of Dylan to be found. They did not even have evidence that they were dealing with a homicide. And then they did. On July 27th of 2013, getting close to a year after Dylan went missing, approximately 8 miles or 13 kilometers from Mark's home, the partial remains of a person were found in the forest approximately 100 yards off of an ATV trail. The remains would quickly be identified as being those of Dylan Redwine, and the case obviously went from being a missing persons case to a homicide investigation. Investigators, though, were still unable to determine a cause of death because the remains had been decapitated, and investigators were unable to recover Dylan's skull. Unfortunately, the condition that Dylan's body was found in while showing foul play did not show enough evidence to tell if the death had been caused by animals or a human being. For those that believed that Mark was a suspect in this case, the evidence obviously did nothing to clear him. It was reported that Mark did have an ATV and was known to use the trails in the mountains where Dylan's body was discovered. A witness also said that they had seen Mark on his ATV in the mountains nearby to where Dylan's remains were found back in April of 2013, 
just a couple of months before the remains were discovered. The witness would go on to say that Mark had left town after he returned from that trip into the mountains, and he refused to, to return home even when Dylan's remains were found. Elaine, though, was certain now that Mark was involved, and only two days after the remains were announced as being Dylan's on the 29th, Elaine would file a wrongful death suit against Mark in regards to the death of Dylan. In the end, this particular lawsuit would not come to conclusion because the statute of limitations would run out on it. On August 19th of 2015, Mark Redwine was finally and officially announced as being a person of interest in the death of Dylan Redwine by the La Plata County Sheriff's Department. At this point as well in their systems, the case was changed from one where the cause of death was undetermined to the cause of death being turned to homicide. And then, in November of 2015, things finally changed. A pair of hikers came across a skull while they were in the forest, approximately two miles down the road from where Dylan's remains had been discovered. A test would determine that the skull did indeed belong to Dylan. The skull showed several knife wounds centered mostly around his left eye, and investigators were also able to determine that those wounds had occurred at, or near to, Dylan's time of death. Wildlife experts from the area would announce that there were no animals native to that area that would remove or even move a skull two miles from the rest of the remains. As such, investigators did operate under the assumption that whatever had happened to Dylan, including the decapitation, had been done by a person rather than an animal. By this time, I think almost everyone believed that at the very least Mark had something to do with Dylan's death, and honestly, most people believed that he was in fact the guilty party. The evidence was stacked against him. Even the very beginning testimony that Mark had given, that Dylan had stayed home alone and had possibly ran away or been taken, seemed like a load of crap. The truth was that Mark didn't realize likely that Dylan had plans to see his friend on the morning of the 19th, and that Dylan would have certainly followed through on those plans and not stayed home when Mark apparently went out. On July 17th of 2017, almost five years after Dylan had been first reported as missing, Mark Redwine was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and child abuse after a grand jury indictment when the grand jury decided that there was indeed enough evidence to convict Mark. As you can imagine, having slogged through two custody battles, Mark was already a pro at delaying things, and he would get help, of course, from his attorneys and from the COVID-19 pandemic as well. The pandemic itself delayed the trial three times. In 2021, though, the case would finally go to trial, and Mark had his day in court. The prosecution's case presented that Mark had been shown the photos that Dylan and Corey had found, 
and then Mark had in turn flown off the handle. And in a fit of rage, he had attacked and killed Dylan, and later moved the body. The evidence, of course, was the cadaver dogs hitting on Mark's living room and the bed of his truck, combined with lots of circumstantial evidence that was uncovered along the way, like Mark not helping to search for Dylan. The goal was to prove that there was a very logical trail of evidence with which to construct what had happened. Conversely, the defense team said that things had been difficult between Mark and Dylan. They agreed that that much was a given. Obviously, many people would testify that Dylan had zero interest in seeing his father at all, so they needed to acknowledge that. However, they said that the fact would have likely been enough to drive Dylan mad and force him to leave the house on his own, perhaps with the intention of not returning. They said that those circumstances were just as likely as Mark being guilty, and it was certainly not out of the realm of possibility that he had been attacked by a wild animal or animals. Yes, they chose that defense, even though there was a lot of evidence that showed that wild animals was at best incredibly unlikely as a cause of death for Dylan. The trial largely centered around the testimony of Dylan's friends from Colorado Springs and from nearby his father's house. All of them stated that Dylan did not have any desire whatsoever to see his father again, especially over the Thanksgiving weekend. After a trial that lasted five weeks, though, the jury ultimately sided with the prosecution, and they came back after six hours of deliberation with a unanimous verdict that Mark Redwine was guilty of second-degree murder and child abuse. The case was then left in Judge Jeffrey Wilson's hands, and he would need to give Mark a sentence of somewhere between 12 and 48 years in prison. Judge Wilson would tell Mark, quote, As a father, it's your obligation to protect your son and keep him from harm. Instead of that, you inflicted enough injury on him to kill him in your living room. After the passion of whatever caused you to act the way that you did subsided, you didn't think about Dylan. You thought about yourself. You sanitized the crime scene. You hid Dylan's body and you went so far as to remove the head from the rest of his body. Unquote. Wilson would sentence Mark to 48 years in prison and said that he would be credited for 1,540 days in custody between indictment and guilty verdict. Mark chose not to speak at the sentencing hearing, instead giving a written statement to the judge to read into court, and it said, quote, Innocent of all charges, miscarriage of justice, fake conviction, and sham trial. He also said that he had shown remorse for things that he had done and that he would appeal. Judge Wilson would also say, quote, After all this time and listening to what was heard in this courtroom, you still take absolutely no responsibility for what you did to Dylan. 
I have trouble remembering a convicted criminal defendant that has shown such an utter lack of remorse for his criminal behavior. Unquote. Corey, Dylan's older brother, would say, I believe the right sentence was given out. This has been nine years of weighing on my mind and my body in ways that I can never describe. So, to think about how I felt for those nine years and for his 48, you know, it's still not enough for the previous nine years. You know, the heartache that our family has endured, unquote. In November of 2021, attorneys for Mark Redwine notified that they intended to appeal, and they mentioned that they would be appealing objections at trial, sufficiency of evidence, and sentencing. They also asked for transcripts from all hearings going all the way back to 2017. As of press time, there is no information on how or if those appeals are continuing. So, that is where this case sits. So, I'll put a wrap on another episode of GBNF, and of course, thank you all for spending some time with me. Please give us a follow or a like on social media. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at GBNF Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok by using at GBNFpod, or on Facebook by searching out facebook.com forward slash GBNFpodcast. If you would like to support the show financially, you can do so by signing up as a patron over at patreon.com forward slash GBNFpodcast. And, of course, you can help the show immensely by giving us five-star reviews, follows, and likes wherever you are taking in this podcast. Every little bit helps. So, I'll leave you by thanking you again for spending a piece of your week with me, and I hope that this podcast, as always, finds you well and that you are endeavoring to be better in your everyday life. See you next time on Gone But Never Forgotten.